this episode, I spoke with Aruna Bay. Having authored the book, How Much is Enough, and advised clients in relation to wealth for many years, Arun has deep insight into wealth, purpose, and happiness. He has a great perspective on how we need to educate and prepare our families to maximize well-being. Take a listen. So I'm here with Arun Abay, uh, a career economist and executive chair of IPAC Securities and Walsh Bay Partners, and more formidably, director of the Smith family. Um, I'm really keen to talk with you about your book, because among all things, you're an author as well, of how much is enough. And I know the focus of that is how we make investment decisions that create wealth, well-being, and happiness, which is so much I think part of the work that I'm hopefully trying to do with the families, and I feel we have a shared value set there. Mm. And I was just interested if we could take us through a bit of a journey, talk about some of the stories that you've uh, found firsthand around this focus on a holistic approach to planning. Um, tell me a little bit about the progress you're making in this space today. Well, Tiffany, the journey goes back, in my case, you know, to about 35 years ago when I got into the financial advice business. And coming from an economics background, and I wouldn't call myself an economist anymore, thank goodness, but I, I thought what I was trying to do with clients was to help them maximise their, their, their wealth. It was about you know, risk-adjusted returns and worrying about tax and so on. And, and those things are, are important. Uh, but what I realised is, at the end of the day, money is a means to an end. And, and what is that end? Well, frankly, that, that end, at the end of the day, you know, has to be more happiness. If, if it's not about happiness, well, you know, really, what's it, what's it about? And, and that might sound a bit simple, but if you think, if you think of, of, of what's special about living in, 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 the, in the 21st century, it, it's this. For the first time, really, in human history, we have the ability not just to survive, but also to thrive. But there's a whole range of skills we need to learn to actually thrive. So... You know, to bring that to life, imagine you're a 21-year-old and your aim is to, is to optimise happiness over your lifetime. How do, you, how do you actually even begin to start thinking about that? Now, do you actually go and, and, and have a fantastic social life and have expensive drinks with your friends and uh, you know, smashed avocado, I believe, is now the, the, the big thing for brunch? You know, is that what you do? Or do you say... Look, maybe you know, maybe six, seven years out, I need to start thinking about maybe getting married and having a ho- uh, having a household. Do I save money for a house? Do I will I be happier if I live fifty kilometres out of the centre of the city, in a very large house, or in the inner city with a much smaller house? You know what, what's going to make me happier? Um, if 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 I can send my kids to a private school, will that make me happier than if if they go to a public school? And what are the things I, I trade off? And that's, and that, that's just the first 10 years right? From, for, a t- t- for a 21-year-old. Do I, as a 21-year-old, actually start worrying about retirement? And what on earth t- t- does, does that mean and, and look like? So we've got these great opportunities, but it's also posed these massively deep questions. Now, the problem with the, uh, with the human brain is it's been evolving for about 200,000 years. For the vast majority of those 200,000 years, really just about every year up to maybe the last 40 or 50 years, our focus was short-term surviving. You know, a good day for, for most, of, most human beings 
from where we came from in the African savannah was, was you know, frankly, was actually having lunch and not being lunch, right? Um, and if you got through to, the, to the, through, through, through the evening, had dinner, had a chance to reproduce, that was as, as good as it got. Frankly, life in Sydney hasn't moved on all that much. Um, but it, it was a very short-term focus. So our brain is massively geared towards surviving. It, it, it thinks short-term because, frankly, that's, what we, that, that's how, we, that's how we, we actually live life. The, the very complex trade-offs that I've just, just, just talked about are, are not something which we're, we're naturally geared to, to doing. So that's, that's the challenge. The good news in this is that the, we, we now know the brain is plastic. We know we can actually learn a whole range of skills. We can actually learn the skills to actually make better decisions. I'm not sure we'll ever make perfect decisions uh, around, around well-being, but we can, we can certainly make, make better ones. And the other piece of good news is that we've now seen a, a number of, of the great universities and great academics actually start to you know, do really quite a serious amount of research in what does well-being mean? It's gone, gone from a sort of abstract concept to being, being you know, to, to there being a lot of a lot of good, good research, and so essentially, in how much is enough? What I've sought to do is to bring together research from a whole range of different disciplines: neuroscience, behavioural psychology, behavioural finance, and also economics, to look more deeply at this whole relationship between money and, and well-being. And essentially, the ethos of, of my new business, you know, Walsh Bay Partners, is really about. It, it's really it revolves around that whole concept. It's interesting. I'm Malcolm Gladwell's a, a, one of my heroes, and I, he talks about in David and Goliath the challenge of parenting when wealth accumulates. It's almost a, the inverted U, mm. and whether you've come across that, and how much wealth is actually enough in dollar terms. So a few years ago, he marked it at seventy-five thousand U.S. for the average family mm. to be satisfied and able to parent. And as the wealth increased, that curve actually came down because mm. of somewhat the uh, distortion or disconnection there between uh, the value of money, the value of work, uh, meaning, identity, purpose. So many of these conversations are part of the work that I'm doing and I know that you're doing. How do families approach this? Is this an obvious thing? Do families come knocking on your door saying, we need to talk about purpose, happiness, setting up our families for success, the money doesn't matter? Or have we had to teach that concept to them in your experience? Well, it's interesting. I think that's the, the conversation families really want to have, but typically it's not what they say. What they'll say is they want, they want the conversation about the money. How do we increase the money? How do we create stewards for wealth and so on and so forth? Um, but the, the deeper issues are the ones that you've, that you've just talked about. So let's just explore this, this problem uh, a bit more. So a, a lot of the research shows, as you say, at about $75,000 or thereabouts, if you like in Maslowian terms, People are feeling secure in terms of, of the basics. Now, what you know, in a logical sense, in a rational world, you just think, well, if I've now got one hundred and fifty thousand, well, my, my happiness should be should be greater. So, why isn't it as, isn't it as simple as that? And why are so many wealthy families, including, frankly, frankly, you know, people like myself, concerned about what the wealth is going to do to our kids? And we, we've all you know, heard the stories. And I think the thing is this: that there's a there are quite separate skills, first of all, in making money. And there's a ton of research and tons of universities and courses about how you make money, be it in business or, frankly, just going out and getting a profession. And that's important to, to go out and make money. There's also, if you've, if you've made it, what's harder than making it, and it's not easy to make it, but what's harder than making it is actually keeping it. 
the skills of investment and keeping money are very different to the, to the skills of being a business person or, or an entrepreneur and making it. Um, and, and people don't appreciate it's a different skill set and they need to go out and learn new skills. So one of the worst things you see is, is a business person has made a fortune from, from selling their business, sets up a family office and forgets to actually build the skill set to invest it. But the third and hardest set of skills, Tiffany, is to use that money wisely with respect to your kids. And there is not a single university course, isn't this interesting? There's not a single university course anywhere in the world on this most important and, and profound topic. And the problem with money, I, I, you see, in, in economics we learn about money as, a, as, as, as legal tender. It just sounds like a, a sort of abstract legal thing. But money's much more than that. Money is a powerful emotional force. The great emotional forces in human life are, are money, if you like, sex, uh, power, children. These are the things which cause people's behavior to change. You know, people will actually kill for, you know, in, in relation to these. You know, that's, why, that's why I call it a force. So people will kill in terms of, in terms of money. So there's, there's a lot of skill in learning how to use such a powerful emotional force. And the problem with the next generation simply inheriting money rather than having gone through the journey of, of making it is that it doesn't necessarily have that, have that skill set to, uh, to, to, to actually use it wisely. There's, there's a whole journey you need to actually go through uh, to learn how to, how to use money wisely. So our starting point, I guess, with, with families is to really tease out what the aspirations are. What would be, as a result of having made this money, what would be great life outcomes? What are the concerns? What are the skills we need to build? And then what's the program for actually doing that? And again, the important and valuable thing is there's now a lot of research. There's a whole foundation of knowledge which we can actually draw on to actually inform this, inform this uh, journey. I love the comment because for me, education is very much the platform. It's the way in, right? right. So if we start with education, uh, we help make better decisions. We help make uh, the communication become more transparent, more collaborative. Um, we start to listen differently to the needs and interests of those family members and hopefully take that wealth and continue the word steward is to caretake, to grow, and to pass on. And right. to me, that's such a fundamental part of this work with families. Um, have you seen a shift? What, what's been some of the triggers? You talk about the last 40, 50 years, but even in the last five or 10, can you see any kind of a trend or a shift more toward this topic? Why did you choose to write the book when you did? And are you seeing mm. that this is becoming more commonplace the way, say, philanthropy has become much more commonplace over the last decade? Right. Um, well, I, I guess I write the book partly as a personal journey, partly in terms of what, what I was seeing with, with clients. Um, so when I started off in, in, in business, I really had no money. And so I could not have afforded, afforded to, to be a client of, of the first business I, I started off. Uh, and my assumption was that people with money had to be automatically happy. And I thought, you know, at about $100,000 a year, you must be the, the happiest person on earth. Uh, eventually, I came across clients who had that amount of money, and they didn't seem to necessarily be the happiest people on earth. So I thought it must be $500,000. Maybe that's, that's the threshold. And eventually, I was dealing with those that, you know, with people in that, in that level. Um, and that wasn't automatic happiness either. So I began to realize there was this, this really quite complex relationship. And the, as I've had the good fortune to, uh, to, to build wealth over a long period of time, 
you know, what, what I've seen with, with my clients, what I've read uh, and started to understand in terms of money being a force is I said, we must have a good foundation of, of knowledge and strategy to ensure that both we, that, that we use it well and also that we equip our children to, to use this money well, to make a difference to their, to their lives uh, and the lives of others. And happily, I stumbled across all the, you know, all the research I've alluded to. Uh, in terms of some of the key elements, if you were to talk about and to unpack some of the key elements of the research and its application, so some of the great research has been done by people like Martin Seligman, professor of psychology at, uh, at um, uh, the University of Pennsylvania. Um, Daniel Kahneman, interestingly enough, a psychologist, a professor of psychology at Princeton, but who won the Nobel Prize for Economics for, in a sense, looking at some, you know, some really quite deep research in terms of this link between money and, 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 and well-being. Uh, a lot of the work by people like, like Shlomo Bernazzi, professor of behavioural decision-making at, at, at the University of California. Now, to d- distill, frankly, what in some cases is Nobel Prize-winning research in a couple of minutes doesn't do it justice, but here are some of the key themes. One is that what leads to enduring well-being is, is not, having much, not having a lot of money. It's having a sense of meaning and purpose. The starting point is discovering what it is that actually engages you. So we, we have the good fortune in a country like this to, you know, for, for, the, for the most part, it's how we spend our time rather than how we spend our money, which is going to be, you know, make a, a big difference. So if in how we spend our time it engages us, it absorbs us mind, body and soul, you know, we're not hating every minute of it, it, it really does engage us. That, that's, a, that's a very important foundation. If in terms of how we spend our time it not only engages us but has a positive effect on others, that gives us a sense of meaning and purpose and that actually multiplies well-being. To go to your point on philanthropy, and I, you know, we, we, we don't seek to preach to our clients, we don't say you have to give or, or anything like that, but what, one of the surprising things about philanthropy is that it can have as as powerful effect on the giver and perhaps a more powerful effect on the giver as it does on the, on the recipient. Uh, and exposing you know, both, both, both the first generation, if you like, of, of wealth creators, but also the second generation to that, linking that to engagement, meaning and purpose are very, very powerful ways of, of building skills to use money wisely. Yeah, that purpose piece. I'm running a series of sessions with groups to just try to get to that first question of purpose. And it's funny, a lot of times I get blank stares. You know, why would a family per se have a stated purpose? You know, we know what we believe, what we feel is right. We have our own sense of values. Hmm. But have we ever really articulated them? You know, we just understand what they are. We are who we are. And then we kind of dig deeper and unpack the fact that... um, those are somewhat shared, but also very different. And are mm. we having that conversation? And for me, so much of this work is about having the conversation and doing it in a way that engages both parties. Jay Hughes writes about the cycle of the gift and talks about not just the preparation of the benefactor to give, but the beneficiary to receive. And mm. that's been a big focus of mine. You talk about the next generation, the emerging generation. Um, do you think we're spending more time on preparing the benefactor and all of the various structures and intentions and goodwill that they have to pass on their life's work? Um, equally, if not as well as, we're preparing the beneficiaries to receive because it's this concept potentially of a burden mm. that if it's not done well, it could be a burden. It could disrupt the identity of that individual if suddenly this wonderful gift is just imposed upon them as opposed to yeah. imparted on them. Do you, do you follow where I'm going no, with that? No, I, I know exactly what you're saying. I think 
Look, I think every benefactor um, wants to prepare their beneficiaries um, for, for, for wealth, if you like. Um, but typically, their skill set is entirely different. You know, typically, the skill set is actually making the money. Uh, and so the skill set of preparing a beneficiary is a completely, completely, there's virtually no overlap between the, 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 two, the two skill sets. Um, so uh, this is where, you know, frankly, professional help, the work that you do with families, uh, is so profoundly important. And, and the complementary work which, which you do and, and we do with you uh, is, is, I think, it can, be, can be very powerful. And maybe just to give some examples of what that means. The, the starting point, I guess, is to say, one of the interesting things about wealth, if you say, well, what does wealth do at a very basic level? The only thing wealth does is to give people more choices. That's all it does. Um, whether that leads to well-being or not now comes down to how well those choices are actually exercised. It sounds, sounds strange. If, if you're brought up with, with, with limited choice, as I was, you just automatically assume that more choice is, is better. But what we now know from the research and practical results is that a lot of choices can paralyse people. People can actually end up feeling worse off when they have, when they have too much choice. So again, there's a skill set around using choice well. So our starting point is with families is to say, let's not worry about things like a family constitution and so on in the first instance. Let's not assume that, the family, that there's an overall set of family values. What we want with our children and with the beneficiaries is to have a sense of ethics, and there should be common sense of ethics and, and, and what ethical behaviour is. But let's recognise that the wealth is going to allow each individual member of the family to actually exercise more choice. And in a sense, paradoxically, it actually promotes more diversity. So I think the first thing is to actually understand each member of the family as an individual. What we know is that when people make decisions which actually resonate with their core values, that that tends to result in, in, in better well-being. But what are your core values? So we, we take clients, uh, as you would, through an exercise of, first of all, discovering what each of their values are. And that's about increasing self-awareness, then surfacing that in a, in a family discussion. So you also start to create a common understanding Oh, so that's why Tiffany actually does what she does and likes what she does. I've now got a better understanding of you, Tiffany, as, as a member of my family. And then we can start to, on the one hand, respect and promote diversity, but also work out the ways we can actually build bridges of unity. So the, the aim really is how do we actually create unity in diversity? I love that. No, it's, it's a wonderful example and so well illustrated in terms of that very beginning journey mm. that a family can take. Um, and that's probably where my final question leads us, Arun, is often the question I get from financial advisors, um, maybe the lawyers and the accountants to some extent, but those who are often already in there because there's a wealth mm. creation opportunity, liquidity event uh, that creates the conversation in the first instance. Mm. How do you... What would be the question you might ask to guide those advisors to change or shift the type of conversation that they'll have with a client to get that family thinking about this sort of topic? Is yeah. there a, a question or two that helps to change the way they talk about that wealth with those mm -hmm. families? Yes. Uh, well, I suppose the, the, the title of my book, which is How Much is Enough, um, the, the answer is not a number. <laughs> The answer, the purpose of that of that of that title, was to get people to think more deeply about the purpose of the wealth. Now, typically, what happens when when people go and speak to a, a family uh, to to a lawyer or, a, or an accountant, 
they can play important roles. First is they start off talking about structure. And the critical thing in terms of the, of the discussion we just had is to start off by thinking about what the purpose is. What would be great outcomes of this wealth? What would be terrible outcomes? Before we worry about the structure, let's now think about the strategies which will maximise the chance. You know, the, re- the reason people actually are successful in business is because they have good strategies. They don't worry about the structure at, at the outset. They think about the strategy. And so one part of the strategies we've discussed is, is going through that whole understanding exercise, develop, uh, understanding values, connecting values to, to, uh, to, to building bridges of, of understanding between, between the family. That then translates into what are the strategies which we want to deploy as a family to support everyone, to also make sure that people aren't being disabled by the money, that the money is not actually going to take away people's incentives and so on. And then what are the structures we need to actually support that? So our starting point, though, with families is, is a piece of work which we call family strategy planning. And there are parts of that which we're very good at. There are more extensive parts of that which a group like yours with, um, you know, with, the, with, the, with the strong soft skills around exploring areas of family disputes uh, and, and so on play, play a very important role working with us to, 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 to really get the family together with a united sense of strategy. United sense of strategy doesn't mean it's the same for everyone. It's respecting the difference and working out, but also working out the commonality. From there, all the technical pieces then become a lot easier. The estate planning piece, the succession planning piece, the investment piece, they become a lot easier. If you start off with all those technical pieces without the strategy, they become a lot harder and invariably they end up not being supportive of the strategy. That's very helpful. Well, um, I agree. This is a holistic model of advice we're talking about, and um, I'm sure we'll continue to workshop this together over the coming years as we're looking at what is the, the right program of essentially education Mm. from the very first conversation through to the one they'll be having for generations to come. So thank you for your time. Thank you, Tiffany. It's great to speak to you.